In social media, the term main character denotes an individual or, or someone who acts in a manner that is oblivious to the effects of their action on others. So in other words, everything revolves around their wants and needs. And many scholars have highlighted how in the ocean, states are the main characters. So rights are always relative to action by states. But we know that it's not just states that interact, use, live, or thrive, or depend on the ocean. Uh, the, the, the state of the ocean at the moment reflects the sort of the many deficiencies with the system. And so we want to really hope for a better management um, model, something that's sustainable and inclusive. And, and so we want to really start to question some of the foregone conclusions we have with the oceans. And we've seen a, an increase in, in uh, indigenous peoples and local communities and small scale groups who are also doing this, questioning this very system of foundation we have in place um, with respect to ocean action. And so in this pilot uh, podcast, I'm super excited, uh, the pilot podcast by the One Ocean Hub, we will be exploring uh, the connection between customary laws, human rights, and the ocean. And just maybe, maybe, fingers crossed, move to the point where we can highlight ideas for meaningful change. Now, my name is Kira Scotcher, and with me today discussing customary laws Human rights and the ocean are Bolanle Irinosho, um, who is a researcher, hub researcher, and lecturer at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana, and David Wilson, who's uh, also a hub researcher and le lecturer at the University of Strathclyde. I'm so happy to have you here, Bola and David. Thank you for coming. Hello, Inkiru. Hi. Um, I will start with you, Bola. How would you explain customary law? Oh, thank you. That's a, perhaps a very difficult question to answer, but I will try my best. Um, so customary law really can be described as uh, perhaps what we know as rules of conduct that communities and everyday groups and, you know, communities and ethnic groups deploy in their everyday relationships. So it's perhaps a collection of shared customs of particular ethnic groups or communities mm. that they have then accepted as legal requirements or you know obligatory rules of conduct. Mm. And they usually reflect the practices and beliefs that are vital and intrinsic parts of their experiences as a lived group of people. Mm. Um, and what how is this then connected with human rights and the ocean so people don't normally see that there's a link between customary law human rights and the ocean you're absolutely right and in fact for some people um the idea of customary law and human rights are two completely opposite ideas and so the first thing we often will get when we speak to people about the fact that we're exploring human rights and customary law is they think oh surely human rights is customary law is often inconsistent with human rights and the reasons for that are quite a few but I think the most important reasons really is on the face of it people would often think customary law will have 
might be discriminatory, you know, might have rules that are inconsistent with human rights or human dignity and perhaps um, might, you know, discriminate against vulnerable groups. So they talk about customary practices that are perhaps uh, um, inconsistent with the idea of human dignity, which human rights talks about. And also for African states um, or African groups, there is also that idea that customary law itself is communal. So the ideals behind customary law, and remember I said it's about the lived or shared experiences of a people, they would often think about it as communal ideals. So customary law is very steeped in communalism, whereas human rights, which were mostly Western developed, is very individual. So often they'd say they're at different ends of the spectrum. But for us, they're not, that's perhaps focusing on the wrong things. Customary law and human rights can and do connect. And in fact, particularly natural resources or oceans law, you would see quite clearly that recognition. And it's not just for us, you know, international human rights law has now come to recognize the, the importance of customary law. And so, for example, the um, Article 27, for example, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Article 15 of the International Covenant on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights talks about the right to participate in cultural life. And they have expanded that idea to include the right to cultures of communities, their right to language and their identity. And of course, their shared cultural values enjoying that in terms of their heritage, both tangible and intangible. And so even within the human rights setting, that the importance of culture and the rights of groups is now firmly established. So that, you know, that idea of them being uh, diametric opposites, we have moved away from that. And you would see that even in natural resources. So we've got declarations like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, mm. uh, UN Declaration on the Rights of Peasants, and all of this talk about the importance of including the cultures, the which customary law is a part of, into decision-making around natural resources, which ocean is a part of. So we, so at the start, yes, it might look like, oh, these are two separate, you know, disciplines, but in practice, they've come together, I think, quite well to help decision-making around the ocean spaces to be more inclusive of those communities. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Very, very insightful. Now, David, do you have any sort of insights um, on, on this whole customary law and human rights connection? What What do you think, David? Yeah. Hi, and thanks for having me as well. Um, I think to understand what we mean by customary law, we do need to remember that customary law most often refers to those laws and protocols that were in place to manage human interactions and communal interactions, as Bola has outlined, including their interactions with their surrounding environments. And this was prior to the centralisation of law and governance under nation states as well. So crucially, in a majority of contexts, this refers to the current laws and protocols of Indigenous peoples and local communities, 
which laws and protocols have continued to exist and adapt and transform through periods of often violent upheaval and dispossession stemming from colonisation. And when it comes to the ocean, what is important to remember is that colonisation not only imposed legal orders over land and peoples, but these legal orders were also imposed over the sea and over the sea's resources. So the ocean management became the purview of colonial governments and later the settler or independent governments that followed. This meant that ocean management, both national and international, became fundamentally rooted in the law and governance being advanced by colonial states. That is predominantly Western thoughts on ocean law, governance, ownership and usage. And these dominant legal orders exist in conflict with what became known as customary laws, those protocols which manage the day-to-day interactions of humans and seas across Indigenous and local communities. Mm-hmm. And so over the past few decades, there has been a growing recognition of the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities, as Bola outlined, to practice these customary laws. And in many constitutions throughout the world, customary laws are recognised as being an equal source of law um, alongside the more state-centric legal doctrine. But such recognition does not automatically provide power in practice. And so Indigenous peoples and local communities have struggled and continue to struggle to meaningfully practice these protocols. And crucially, to protect their rights as these rights are established in customary laws, from external ocean users, from mm. others. And, and that's the thing. I think a lot of people forget the law. When you look at law itself, it's an expression of, uh, of, of societal values and norms and, and law. Customary law itself also is law and, and, and exists, again, to manage human interactions, like you said. And, of course, part of that interaction then involves rules and protocols and again, expresses those societal norms and values and rights. And, and so it's interesting, as you've also pointed out, really, that the kind of issue here is conflict between the current legal order and, of course, the customary law. And how in this conflict we find that, you know, the current legal order kind of dominates, right? And this domination then is, of course, detrimental to, to customary laws, which here, like Bola has just told us, includes rights that manage human interactions with, with, the, uh, with the ocean. So that is in itself quite interesting. I think a lot of people don't make that connection with law and human interaction, definitely. It's kind of always seen as some external um, thing there in the background that isn't connected with our daily lives and our lived experiences. Hmm. And so coming back to you, Bola, your work experience and research in West Africa means that you really kind of are the person who can enlighten our listeners as to the connection between customary laws and human rights. But I really want to say if there's one thing really that you can make happen or begin in that space, what would it be? Okay, maybe you can have more than one, but I'd, I'd like to know what you know, there's one thing in particular that you would like to see happen in that space. What would it be? Um, So what would I like to see happen the most? Well, um, actually picking up on the word conflict that you you used um, in what you've just talked about, um, you know, in your response to David, really. Often, as you said, even though for many 
of the countries in West Africa, and I'm focusing on Ghana, which is the subject of our, you know, much of the research we're doing at the moment. They have included customary law within what, for a better, you know, use of word state law, you know, um, the the law which has developed through the colonial period, which was um, uh, imported via um, British colonial rule. So customary law is now uh, ostensibly part of that law and recognized by the state. Uh, but the actual practice itself would see would often see that in many spaces and in natural resources, particularly oceans itself, uh, not much has been done to see how we can fully integrate customary law. So you would often see that within the discussions in the ocean spaces, the focus is still on what I would call the state law. So the acts of parliament, you know, the state regulations and the bylaws of district assemblies. And often the discussions as to how the communities themselves self-regulate around the ocean is secondary. And so what perhaps I would like to see going forward is us coming to a position or um, a situation where these two kinds of laws, if you can call them kinds of laws, uh, customary law and state law, are not discussed in terms of conflict, but rather discussed in terms of mutual supportiveness, you know, how both can uh, be in their own spaces, but interact in a way to ensure that the oceans are sustainably managed. And so it's moving away from the idea of conflicts or inconsistencies to an idea of mutual supportiveness. I think that's ultimately what we're hoping for. And, and, that's, to and that's totally fair, considering Ghana's independence from uh, Great Britain was 1957. And that's mm. been quite a while to kind of get that synergy and relationship and you know kind of inclusivity going and it's it's quite interesting that that's not been the case at all and so mm -hmm. following up on that um what would you then say is the key challenge you've faced in your work I know that this is one of the this is a thing that you think you would like to see change in but would you say that's a key challenge you faced in your work in West Africa Africa or um is there another challenge that you would like to highlight in relation to this issue? Um, yes, there are a few other challenges in, other, in addition to that. So one of them you've actually picked up in uh, your response there. Um, you know, it's been many, many years since uh, independence. And for many of those countries, Ghana inclusive, the first couple of years was looking at how to essentially decolonize the law. And so a few attempts were made to try to integrate customary law. But I would say uh, since those initial attempts, it has kind of stalled a bit. And so in some parts, it's developed a bit more. So in terrestrial spaces, for example, around some resources, that's been a bit more work. But in the ocean space, where almost a quarter of the population, I should say, live along the coast, so the ocean space is very important and very, uh, you know, vast space, it's, it has stalled. And I think one of the reasons it stalled is um, a question of political will. And that's that 
challenge of political will is also a challenge for us in research because ultimately all research, particularly research for development, must uh, be, you know, must be taken up by governments uh, to implement it. And so it's finding the way to get the political actors to essentially adopt the findings and adopt and be willing to you know, expand the space and push further than where they are comfortable with at the moment. So at the moment, they're perhaps only focused on this is the act of parliament and this is how we want to use it to manage the ocean spaces. And that's what we're comfortable with and getting them to move away from that comfort zone to thinking, no, you've got to think a bit more expansively and think, and even question why you think one act of parliament is sufficient to manage this very complex space. So that's one of the challenges, you know, we're facing. And of yeah. course, there's a the big problem of customary law itself, you know, uh, because of the history of contestation, which David has uh, mentioned previously, it means that customary law itself is... It's perhaps fluid, which is a good thing, but it also means sometimes it's perhaps too fluid. And so one of the criticisms is that, well, maybe because it's so uh, malleable, it's maybe too malleable to be part of the law or be able to actually manage the complex situation around the ocean. So that's also a challenge, I think. That's interesting, your point on... um kind of the malleability of it. Um, I think here, the whole point of political will is very valid, but maybe mm-hmm. when we think about expansiveness, the kind of voices that are involved as well as partners in this matters. And this is where I think, David, I'd like to check with you what you think. You know, I know your work focuses on the sort of impact of this imposition of this global North uh, paradigm on, on the global South. And what do you think is, you know, a challenge in, in like true co-creation of knowledge in, in on these issues? Because we know that sometimes the voices that are involved are not as diverse and inclusive as as they need to be. So what what do you reckon here um, is a challenge here from the Global North perspective? Well, I'm a historian, so I can't help bringing it back to the historical context here. <laughs> um, And so I think the key challenge here is really the fact that the history of modern ocean governance is deeply entangled with the parallel histories of colonisation, as we've discussed, but Mm. also the development of environmental marine sciences and Western-dominated conservationism, which was wrapped up in this history of colonisation as well. And what this has meant is that knowledge hierarchies surrounding the ocean Mm. are embedded and continue to be reinforced across both governance and research to this day. You know, in the past, such knowledge hierarchies have constructed dominant Western knowledge systems as being the sort of rational and objective approaches to environmental governance in direct contrast to non-Western knowledge systems, which have been characterised as different to that, as sort of non-rational or non-objective. And this has placed a different value on what we refer to as scientific knowledge to that which is often referred to as you know, traditional knowledge or community science or vernacular science. 
And I think one key issue within this is the idea of evidence and what is now being accepted as evidence mm. within ocean governance research. So the observations, for example, of those who interact with marine environments on a daily basis mm. are often treated as lesser than the observations gained through what we now most often refer to as scientific research. Mm. Similar to the ways in which customary laws are often required to be justified in national courts, in courts that are not rooted in customary laws, they're being tested by different um, ways of knowing different systems. And yet these observations can tell us so much about specific environments over the long term and also how people have changed and adapted to changing environments, which has then often led again to further environmental change as well. And this knowledge is often deeply place-based and unique to different environments. Mm. And these have then informed the protocols that have been put in place to govern these local areas, these local marine areas. And we often see that such locally managed marine areas, based on such knowledge and observations, prove more sustainable and more effective than top-down governance mm. that is informed by science. And indeed, top-down governance utilises science in conjunction with the law mm. to justify the sort of assumption of the rights to make decisions about that space. Mm. And then it's not, you know, it's not as effective or it's not as sustainable mm. than place-based knowledge and place-based systems. I think one of the key challenges as well within within this is that it's not really about placing one of these forms of knowledge ahead of the other or even trying to bring these knowledges together and merge them in some way. Instead, the challenge is ensuring that both have their equal place at the table. And if they do not have their equal place at the table, which requires building capacity in communities and addressing the power imbalances that exist at the table, then we are missing out on key knowledge, values and approaches in our responses to climate breakdown. We've discussed already that it's customary laws that often manage the day-to-day -day interactions with the ocean in many indigenous and local communities throughout the world. And so our responses to climate change and ocean challenges just simply cannot neglect or ignore the importance of that. We have to work with as well as through the tensions between these different legal and knowledge systems and commit to understanding where power lies rather than ignoring such imbalances or similarly idealising certain knowledges, laws and approaches over others. There has to be dialogue, but this dialogue has to be done on an equal basis. Absolutely. And I think this is the thing. It's one thing to critique an approach and, and say, oh, you know, we, we're going to it's it's wrong. But it's also another thing to then get to that point of meaningful change. And like you said, it's about the togetherness and bringing them together. You know, there are different management approaches possible when it comes to the ocean, acknowledging that that is possible and that there is also a consistency and uniqueness to, to all these approaches that have some value. Um, and then we can then really actually face up to who is obviously affected the most by biodiversity loss or or the detrimental effects of, of uh, climate change in the ocean. And of course, their human rights to uh, our human rights to a healthy environment being compromised. So, you know, of course, question remains, what can we do? And like Bolas uh, indicated, we can begin a state level, rec recognize and incorporate these systems. Um, and like you were saying, David, is not about sort of creating an us and them scenario. It's an uh, all of us kind of scenario. And, and then this can probably 
begin that journey towards meaningful ocean action and one that can move beyond that whole top-down main character approach as I like to say it um but I think this this is this has been really insightful what we've tried to do really here today is question the law that applies in the oceans highlight that relevant viewpoints in relation to the ocean imagine the ability to respond to many issues affecting the ocean in a targeted effective and inclusive manner um, unless you have any other final thoughts on this Bola and and David I can I can go I think one of the main points, again, it's, it's kind of from this historical perspective, but what I really want to stress is that customary laws aren't, aren't these laws or protocols that are frozen in time, and I think sometimes that's how they're tested in, in courts, and national courts. It's this idea that they have existed prior to colonisation, for example, so therefore they can be protected and maintained. And that's, that's not really the, the point. The point is that these are past, present and future customs and protocols over the lands and seas that are managed by indigenous peoples and local communities in response to changing conditions so they aren't frozen in time and place and they shouldn't be judged hmm. by that by that time by that sort of historical link instead as we've discussed customary laws are fluid and adaptive and this needs to be recognized as these are laws that are able to respond to and develop from the latest knowledge and observations surrounding environments hmm. too. so as you say it's about bringing people together but understanding that these laws are are fluid and adaptive, and we mm. can learn from that as well. Just like our laws, uh, or sort of the dominant law has been fluid and adaptive. You know, there were laws that were considered acceptable back in the day that are completely unacceptable now. Just as current dominant legal tradition is fluid and and, and has changed, so also um, is customary law. What What about you, Bola? What, what are you thinking? Well, absolutely, uh, I agree with that, and I think even though that I had pointed out was, you know, often raised as a criticism, but I think actually that is also the strength of customary law, because as we said, it, it reflects the lived experiences of people who exist currently. And yes, those experiences perhaps have also been influenced by what has happened in the past, but it is, um, it is up to date and it is current. And that reflects how these communities engage with the ocean and they do and yes uh, you can see that happen often they do adapt their customary law to reflect changes and those changes include uh, changes that are happening at the moment in terms of climate change and depletion of the resources so they also have had to reflect that in how they interact and engage with the ocean and ocean spaces and you can see that particularly in the way women have um, come to become more dominant in that space and I say become more becoming more dominant you know there's still a long way to go but uh, because of some of the challenges around um, the ocean and some of the resources and decline, for example, in Ghana, decline of fisheries resources, uh, the women have had to be more adaptable and perhaps um, even start to take a more prominent role in trying to find solutions to it. And so even that idea of Oh, customary law in the past have, you know, maybe um, disenfranchised women is not quite true in the present because we're seeing that even change as well so it's it's that point about yes uh, 
um, it's a strength of customary law, you know, that ability to be able to reflect changing circumstance and that we think it can bring to that table and also help when we make decisions around the ocean. Brilliant. And on that lovely note on strength in diversity and inclusiveness on prominence of, of roles that were formerly ignored. I want to thank you all for tuning in to the pilot podcast by the One Ocean Hub and and to thank you, David and Bola, for your um, very interesting insights into this. 